Welcome to Unbound Theatre's second audio anthology, a collection of new writing, old classics and performances from the Unbound team. We start this anthology with a poem by Elaine Conway. This is Gordon, read by Stephanie Hull. I picture you clearly in my mind, with garden tools, a rake, a hoe, raising trays of tiny seeds. You'd nurture them, they'd thrive and grow underneath your watchful eye. The garden was a splendid sight, with lawns trimmed neatly, luscious green, and border flowers packed in tight. All colours of the rainbow seen, with buzz of bee and butterfly. Summer days would find you there, dressed in sandals and your shorts, weeding, digging, tending, mending, the garden always in your thoughts those pleasant days just drifting by. Maybe now you're in a garden. It may be summer, maybe not. But in my memory you'll be gardening, mowing lawns when days are hot, in hazy heat when the sun rides high. You're always there, in my mind's eye. We now move to a new section for these audio anthologies, with some light-hearted silliness, from Gareth Johnson's Bitto Nonsense. Who are you? said Albert and Stu, as a man walked through the door who neither Albert nor Stu knew. They looked at each other, their minds all aflutter, not knowing what, where or who was the right thing to do. They thought for a moment and looked at the man, as though just by looking they'd come up with a plan. But alas, the man just stood, stared back. Was he here as a friend? or here to attack. They just didn't know. This was knowledge they lacked. Stu sighed, Albert frowned, and the man turned around and walked through the door and completely ignored Albert and Stu, and they let him walk through. And like that, he was gone. And on this strange morn, though they try, try and try, to this day, Albert and Stu still don't know why. We conclude this audio anthology with Andy Faber reading an extract from P.G. Woodhouse's Thank You, Jeeves. Thank you, Jeeves. Part 1, Chapter 1, read by Andy Faber. Chapter 1. Jeeves gives notice. I was a shade perturbed. Nothing to signify, really, but still just a spot concerned. As I sat in the old flat, idly touching the strings of my banjolele, an instrument to which I had become greatly addicted of late, and you couldn't have said that the brow was actually furrowed, and yet, on the other hand, you couldn't have stated absolutely that it wasn't. Perhaps the word pensive about covers it. It seems to me that a situation fraught with embarrassing potentialities had arisen. Jeeves, I said, do you know what? No, sir. Do you know who I saw last night? No, sir. J. Washburn Stoker and his daughter Pauline. Indeed, sir. They must be over here. It would seem so, sir. Awkward, what? I can conceive that after what occurred in New York, it might be distressing for you to encounter Miss Stoker, sir, but I fancy the contingency need scarcely arise. I wait this. When you start talking about contingencies arising, Jeeves, the brain seems to flicker and I rather miss the chest. Do you mean that I ought to be able to keep her out of the way? Yes, sir. Avoid her? Yes, sir. I played five bars of Old Man River with something of abandon. His pronouncement had eased my mind. I followed his reasoning. After all, London's a large place. 
quite simple not to run into people if you don't want to. It gave me rather a shock, though. I imagine so, sir. Accentuated by the fact that they were accompanied by Sir Roderick Glossop. Indeed, sir. Yes, it was at the Savoy Grill. They were putting on the nosebag together at the table by the window. And here's rather a rummy thing, Jeeves. The fourth member of the party was Lord Chuffnell's aunt, Myrtle. What could she be doing in that gang? Possibly her ladyship is an acquaintance either of Mr. Stoker, Miss Stoker, or Sir Roderick, sir. Yes, that might be so. Yes, that might account for it. But it, it surprised me, I confess. Did you enter into conversation with them, sir? Who, me? No, Jeeves, I was out of the room like a streak. Apart from wishing to dodge the Stokers, can you see me wantonly and deliberately going and chatting with old Glossop? Certainly he has never proved a very congenial companion in the past, sir. If there is one man in the world I hope never to exchange speech with again, it is that old crumb. I forgot to mention, sir, that Sir Roderick called to see you this morning. What? Yes, sir. He called to see me? Yes, sir. After what passed between us? Yes, sir. Well, I'm dashed. Yes, sir. I informed him that you had not yet risen, and he said that he would return later. He did, did he? Ha <laughs> ha! One of those sardonic ones. Well, when he does, set the dog on him. We have no dog, sir. Then step down to the flat below and borrow Miss Tinker Mool's Pomeranium. Paying social calls after the way he behaved in New York. I never heard of such a thing. Did you ever hear of such a thing, Jeeves? I confess that in the circumstances, his advent occasioned me surprise, sir. I should think it did. Good Lord! Good heavens! Good gosh! Man must have a crust of a rhinoceros. And when I've given you the inside story, I think you will agree with me that my heat was justified. Let me marshal my facts and go to it. About three months before, noting a certain liveliness in my aunt Agatha, I had deemed it prudent to pop across to New York for a space of time to give her time to blow over. About halfway through my first week there, in the course of a beano of some description of the Cherry Netherland, I made the acquaintance of Pauline Stoker. She got right in amongst me. Her beauty maddened me like wine. Jeeves, I recollect saying, on returning to the apartment, who was the fellow who, on looking at something, felt like somebody looking at something? I, I learned the passage at school, but it has escaped me. I fancy the individual we have in mind, sir, is the poet Keats who compared his emotions on the first reading Chapman's Homer to those of stout Cortez when, with eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific. The Pacific, eh? Yes, sir. And all his men looked at each other with wild surmise, peak upon a peak in Darien. Of course, it all comes back to me. Well, that's how I felt this afternoon on being introduced to Miss Pauline Stoker. Uh, press the trousers with special care tonight, jeez. I'm dining with her. In New York, I've always found, one get off the mark pretty quickly in the matters of the heart. This, I believe, is due to something in the air. Two weeks later, I proposed to Pauline. She accepted me. So far, so good. But mark the sequel. Scarcely forty-eight hours after that, a monkey wrench was bunged into the machinery and the whole thing was off. The hand that flung the monkey wrench was the hand of Sir Roderick Blossom. In these memoirs of mine, as you may recall, I have had occasion to make somewhat frequent mention of that old pot of poison a bald-doned, bushy-browed blighter, ostensibly a nerve specialist, but in reality, as everyone knows, nothing more or less than a high-priced loony doctor. He has been cropping up in my path for years, always with the most momentous results, and it so happened that he was in New York with the announcement of my engagement appeared in the papers. What brought him there was one of his periodical visits to J. Washburn Stoker's second cousin George, 
Miss George was a man who, after a lifetime of doing down the widow and orphan, had begun to feel the strain of it. His conversation was odd, and he had a tendency to walk on his hands. He had been a patient of Sir Roderick's for some years, and it was the latter's practice to dash over to New York every once in a while to take a look at him. He arrived on the present occasion, just in time to read over the morning coffee and egg, that the news that Bertram, Worcester, and Pauline Stoker were planning to do the wedding glide. And so far as I can ascertain, he was at the telephone, ringing up the father of the blight-to-be without so much as stopping to wipe his mouth. Well, what he told J. Waspore about me, I cannot, of course, say, but at a venture, I imagine he informed me that I had once been engaged to his daughter, Honoria, and that he had broken off the match because he had decided that I was Barbie to the core. He would have touched, no doubt, on the incident of the cats and the fish in my bedroom, possibly also on the episode of the stolen hat and my habit of climbing down waterspouts, winding up, maybe, with a description of the unfortunate affair of the punctured hot water bottle at Lady Wickham's. A close friend of J. Washbourne's, and a man on whose judgment J. W. relied, I take it that he had little difficulty in persuading the latter that I was not the ideal son-in-law. At any rate, as I say, within a mere forty-eight hours of the holy moment, I was notified that it would be unnecessary for me to order the new sponge-back trousers and gardenia, because my nomination had been cancelled. And it was this man who was having the cool what's-the-word to come calling at the Worcester home. I mean, I ask you. I resolved to be pretty terse with him. I was still playing the banjolele when he arrived. Those who know Bertram Wooster best are aware that he is a man of sudden, strong enthusiasms, and that, when in the grips of one of these, he becomes a remorseless machine, tense, absorbed, single-minded, it was so in the matter of this banjolele playing of mine, since the night of the Alhambra, when the supreme virtuosity of Ben Bloom and his sixteen Baltimore buddies had fired me up to take up the study of the instrument. Not a day had passed without its couple of hours' practice assiduating my practice, and I was twanging the strings like one inspired when the door opened and Jeeves shoveled in the foul, straight-waistcoated specialist to whom I had been alluding. In the interval which has elapsed since I had first been appraised of the man's desire to have speech with me, I had been thinking things over and the only conclusion to which I had come was that he must have had a change of heart of some nature, and decided that an apology was due to me for the way he had behaved. It was, therefore, a somewhat softened Bertram Wooster, who now rose to do the honours. "'Ah! Sir Roderick,' I said. "'Good morning!' Nothing could have exceeded the courtesy with which I had spoken. Conceive of my enjoyment, my astonishment, therefore, when his only reply was a grunt and in an indubitably pleasant grunt at that. I felt that my diagnosis of the situation had been wrong. Right off the bull's eye I had been. Here was no square-shooting apologizer. He couldn't have been glaring at me with more obvious distaste if I had the germ of dementia playcocks. Well, if that was the attitude he was proposing to adopt, well, I mean to say, my geniality waned. I drew myself up coldly, at the same time raising a stiff eyebrow. I was just about to work off the old to what am I indebted for this visit gag when he chipped off in ahead of me. You ought to be certified. I beg your pardon? You're a public menace. For weeks, it appears, you have been making life a hell for all your neighbours with some hideous musical instrument. I see you have it with you now. How dare you play that thing in a respectable block of flats? Infernal din! I remained cool and dignified. Did you say infernal din? I did. Oh. Well, let me tell you that the man hath no music in himself. I stepped to the door. Jeeves, I called out the passage. What was it that Shakespeare said the man who hadn't music in himself would fit for? Treasons, stratagems, and spoils, sir. Thank you, Jeeves. It's fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils, I said, returning. He danced a step or two. Are you aware that the occupant of the flat below, Mrs. Tinkler Mook, is one of my patients? 
a woman in a highly nervous condition. I have had to give her a sanative. I raised a hand. Spare the gossip from the loony bin, I said, distantly. distantly. Might I inquire, on my side, if you are aware that Mrs. Tinklemook owns a Pomeradian? Don't drivel. I'm not driveling. This animal yaps all day and not infrequently far into the night. So Mrs. Tinklemook has had the nerve to complain of my banjo lady, has she? Ha! Let her first pluck out the pom which is in her own eye, I said, becoming a bit scriptural. He chafed visibly. I'm not here to talk about dogs. I wish for your assurance that you will immediately cease annoying this unfortunate woman. I shook the head. I'm sorry she's a cold audience, but my art must come first. That's your final word, is it? It is. Very good. You'll hear more of this. And Mrs. Tinklemook will hear more of this, I replied, brandishing the banjo lady. I touched the buzzer. Jeeves, I said, show Sir Argos about. I confess that I was well pleased with the manner in which I had comported myself during this clash of wills. There was a time, you must remember, when the sudden appearance of old gossip in my sitting room would have been enough to send me bolting for cover like a rabbit. Since then I had passed with the furnace, and the sight of him no longer filled me with a nameless dread. What a good deal of quiet self-satisfaction I proceeded to play. I played the wedding of the painted doll. I played the singing in the rain. Three little words. <laughs> good night, sweetheart. My love parade, spring is here, whose baby are you? And part of what I want is an automobile <laughs> that goes toot toot in the order named. And it was I. It was as I was approaching the end of this last tumble, the telephone rang. I went to the instruments and stood listening. And as I listened, my face grew hard and set. Very good, Mr. Manglehofer, I said coldly. You may inform Mrs. Tinklemook and her associates that I will choose the latter alternative. I touched the bell. Jeeves, I said, there's been a spot of trouble. Indeed, sir. Unpleasantness is winning his ugly head in Berkeley Mansions, W1. I note also a lack of give and take and an absence of the noble spirit. I've just been talking to the manager of this building on the telephone. He's delivered an ultimatum. He says that I must either chuck playing the bench lady or clear out. Indeed, sir. Complaints it would seem, have been lodged by the Honourable Mrs. Tinkler Moog of C6, by Lieutenant Colonel J.J. J. Buster D.S.O. of B5, and Sir Everard and the Lady Blesser Hassett of B7. All right, so be it. I don't care. We shall be well rid of these Tinkler Moogs, these Bustards and these Blenner Hassets. I shall leave them without a pang. You are proposing to move, sir? I raised the eyebrows. Surely, Jeeves, you cannot imagine that I ever consider any other course— but I fear, sir, you shall encounter a similar hostility elsewhere. Not where I'm going. It is my intention to retire to the depths of the country, and some old word sequestered nook. I shall find a cottage, and there resume my studies. A cottage, sir? A cottage, Jeeves. If possible, honeysuckle covered. The next moment, you could have knocked me down with a toothpick. There was a brief pause, and, and then Jeeves, whom I have nurtured in my bosom, so to speak, for years and years and years, gave a sort of cough. And there proceeded from his lips these incredible words. In that case, sir, I feel I must give my notice. There was a tense silence. I stared at the man. Jeeves, I said, and you wouldn't be far out of describing me as stun. Did I hear you correctly? Yes, sir. You, you actually contemplate leaving my entourage? Only with the greatest reluctance, sir. But if it is your intention to play that instrument within the narrow confines of a country cottage, I drew myself up. You say that instrument, Jeeves, and you say it in an unpleasant, soupy voice. Am I to understand that you dislike this banjo lady? Yes, sir. 
used to it all right up to now. With grave difficulty, sir. And let me tell you that better men of you have stood worse than Banjolales. Are you aware that a certain Bulgarian, Elia Gubsinov, once played the bagpipes for twenty-four hours at a stop? Ripley vouches for this in his Believe It or Not. Indeed, sir. Well, do you suppose Gubsinov's personal attendant kicked? A laughable idea. They are made of better stuff than that in Bulgaria. I am convinced that he was behind the young master from start to finish on his attempt of the Central European Lech record, and I have no doubt frequently rallied round with his ice packs and other restoratives. Be Bulgarian, Jeeves. No, sir, I fear I cannot recede from my position. But dash it! You say you are receding from your position. I should have said, I cannot abandon the stand on which I've taken. Oh. I mused a while. You mean this, Jeeves? Yes, sir. You thought it all out carefully, weighing the pros and cons, balancing this and that? Yes, sir. And I resolved? Yes, sir. If it is really your intention to continue playing that instrument, I have no option but to leave. The Worcester blood boiled over. The circumstances of recent years have so shaped themselves as to place this blighter in a position which you might describe as that of a domestic Mussolini. But forgetting this and simply sticking to the cold, hard fact, what is Jeeves, after all? A valet? A salaried attendant. And a fellow simply can't go on truckling. Do, do I mean truckling? I know it begins with T, to, to his valet forever. There comes a moment when he must remember that his ancestor did dash well at the Battle of Tracy and put the old foot down. This moment had now arrived. Then leave. Dash it. Very good, sir.